Okay. Are you are you standing here, Sage, for the adult teaching? Yeah, he wanted to be with Ruby. Boom! There you go. Oh, see, so he, he's sitting right in front of me. Just so he can show you. So he can show me how much smarter he is the entire time that I'm trying to teach. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll open up. We're going to be in Exodus. Um, we're going to go through the end of 13 and through 14 today. Uh, I will speak briefly from a section in chapter 12, but if you want to open to 13, you can. We'll be in verse 17. So Exodus 13, 17. I'm going to pray and then we'll start. Lord, um, gosh, we thank you that we are gathered on Sunday as we remember every week that you rose from the dead. And we did, we celebrated Easter last week, but literally every single week, on the first day of the week, we remember that you rose, that you overcame death forever. That you have made a way for us to overcome sin, disease, pain, sadness, loneliness, depression, sorrow, brokenness from sin within and sin without. You have made a way for us to overcome that. And that is through the sacrifice of your son, but equally important through his resurrection. And so today we rejoice that you have overcome and that as we put our faith and trust in you, we also will have overcome. I ask that as we open your scriptures, I ask that you would speak to every single heart, mind, and soul in this building. That it would be your words that come forth and not mine. That the little things that I teach would not ever overshadow or undermine the truth of your scriptures the truth which leads us to salvation. Speak to us right now. Teach us of your children Israel and help us to walk in that everlasting way that you have laid out before us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the question that I really want to get at today is, um, as we get into this, is do we trust God in every circumstance? Do we trust him in everything? In every single thing. And as we read through today, there's a couple things that I want to point out specifically. I'm going, to, um, I'm going to look at the question of, do we trust the one who is leading us and leading Israel? Do we trust the promises given by God? Do we trust his timing? Do we trust his path? And then finally, do we trust his character? Um, we're going to look through Exodus 13 and 14. And then we're also going to jump back into a couple other scriptures but of particular interest today, we are going to be looking at Genesis 15. Um, I believe it's verses 7 through 18 in addition to what we're looking at in Exodus. So I'm going to just start off by reading. Um, by way of a brief recap, we are in the Exodus period during the time of the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And the last several weeks, we've really looked at Passover and all the things that that entails. And we've looked at how those really telegraphed or pointed forward to Jesus, of his death as the Passover lamb, of his resurrection on the 16th day, the day after the Passover feast, when they would come and give their first fruits, and that Jesus was that first fruit, that he rose from the dead on that day. And we looked at those things, but what I don't want us to lose is kind of the momentum of the story as it goes. 
And as we go through Exodus, what the Lord's going to do, and as, as Moses, the author of Exodus and the Holy Spirit, they will stop at certain portions to bring in new teachings. And so really chapter 13 goes a bunch into consecrating the firstborn to God. But if we're back in 12, back in 12, we're actually seeing the death of these firstborn. And then the Pharaoh and the Egyptians crying out like, oh my gosh, we just, all of our children are dead. All of our firstborn sons are dead. And so I want to briefly look at, um, before we jump into 13, I'm going to go to Exodus 12, uh, 31 through 42, and I will read it briefly. I don't have a bunch of commentary there, but I just want to read it so that we find ourselves um, within the flow of the story. And it says, and he summoned Moses, this is speaking of uh, Pharaoh, he summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you, have, as you asked and leave and also bless me. Now remember, this was the request of Moses and of the Lord over and over and over. And Pharaoh kept changing it. Well, you can go, but don't go very far. Well, you can go, but not, not your women and children. Well, okay, they can go too, but don't take all your flocks. Well, you can go a little ways, but not three days away. So he kept making these, he kept trying to negotiate with the Lord. I'll let you go kind of, but not all the way. And the Lord kept saying, no, we'll go this way. And now he's finally giving in. Now that his firstborn son is dead, he's finally saying, okay, you guys can go. And he's giving them all the kind of parameters that the Lord had originally asked for. Take every, everyone and take off. Uh, verse 33, now the Egyptians pressed, pressured the people in order to send them away quickly out of the country. For they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls and wrapped it up in their clothes and put it on their shoulders. And the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians and the Israelites traveled from Ramses. Now, Ramses is where they were living as slaves, it says. And they went to Succoth. About 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families. And a mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. And I want to point out briefly here, we have talked about that the entire theme of Exodus is to know Yahweh, to know the Lord. He said, every time he would do something, he said, in this way, Pharaoh, you will know that I'm Yahweh. And other times he would say to Israel, I'm going to do this in Israel, you'll know that I'm Yahweh. And then he would say other times, the Egyptians at large will know that I am Yahweh when I do this. Or the Israelites or Moses. And so he keeps saying this. And what I want to point out here is that evidently some people came to that realization because it says here that a mixed multitude went with them. That means there's people going with them that aren't descendants of Abraham but they will eventually become part of Israel. They will circumcise their sons and enter the covenant and they will be Israelites indeed. And it's an amazing thing as you go through the scriptures to realize that the only entrance to become part of this country was simply making an allegiance to Yahweh and the way that you made that allegiance was by circumcising all the firstborn children or firstborn males. So even those who were bought as slaves, the Israelites were commanded to circumcise them. There was no second class citizens. They got all the rights all the promises that all of Israel got. Once you were in, you were in. 
And so they go out with them. And it says, they went out, the people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt. This is verse 39. Into unleavened loaves. And again, we talked a a while back about the Feast of Unleavened Bread that coincided with the uh, Feast of the Passover. Since it had no yeast. For when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in the honor of the Lord, a night of vigil for all the Israelites throughout all their generations. Now, last week we went over the Passover. We went over the consecration of the firstborn in chapter 13. So let's skip forward to chapter 13, verse 17, which is where we ended last week. And it picks the story back up and it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, The people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea, along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. And then you must take my bones with you from this place. And they set out from Succoth and they camped to Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, never left its place in front of the people. Now, clearly, we see that the Lord is leading them out. And that's why we're going to get into 14, and what we're going to see is something that will become a constant refrain for Israel. It's unbelief over and over. We are now 10 plagues into the Lord doing miraculous things. We have seen over and over and over 10 times that the Lord can do and will do whatever he wants. We have seen that he is trustworthy, that he is a man of his word, and that he is able to accomplish the salvation that he has promised. And yet, as we get into 14, we're going to see a constant, the beginning of a constant issue for Israel. And this is doubt, unbelief, and a heart of complaining. And so as we get further on, they're going to say to Moses, man, come on, Moses. We could have died in it. You brought us out here to die? Would have been better for us just to say slaves than to come out here and die. And that's why I asked the question, do we trust the Lord? Do we really trust him? And clearly the Israelites don't because every time something comes into their path, that trust evaporates and they quickly begin to complain and point the finger at the Lord. And even though they won't a lot of times point the finger directly at God, when they point the finger at Moses, they are because Moses is just doing what the Lord has instructed him. Um, And so I want us to look really quickly at the question of who's leading Israel. We see this bizarre thing that starts right here, and we're going to see it through the rest of Exodus and really throughout the wilderness. And even as we get into the kingdom of Israel, we see this pillar that we've really never been introduced to before. 
And suddenly it's here. It just kind of appeared. Like they're leaving and suddenly there's this huge pillar of cloud that's going out leading them. All day, wherever they, wherever they go, they're following it. And in the evening, the same thing, except it's fire. So who or what is this thing? And I want to look at a couple things. And that's why I want to go back to Genesis 15. And these two really tie together because Genesis 15 is actually where the Lord gives Abraham a really special promise. So let's flip back there and look at this really quick. Or maybe it won't be that quick. <laughs> it's Genesis 15. And I want to read this whole portion. It's, uh, it's verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Um, and what is happening here is this. Abraham has been promised from the Lord. Remember, he left uh, Ur of the Chaldees in chapter 12 of Genesis. And the Lord said, come out from your father's family, from the land that you know, I'm going to give you a different land. I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a mighty man. And through you, all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. And yet it's been some time now and that nothing has happened. He still doesn't have a son. So the promise at this point, he doesn't see it happening. And so he asks the Lord, um, like, I still don't have a son. What's the deal? Like you said, you're going to do this stuff and I believe you, but when's this going to happen? And the Lord says this to him in verse eight. And the Lord promises, I am going to do these things. And then in verse eight, Abraham responds and says, but he said, Lord, how can I know that I will possess it? Speaking of this land. And he said to him, bring me three, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old male ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him and he cut them in half and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Okay, this maybe seems really bizarre to you and to me. But just like we have contracts that we signed today, in the ancient Near East, what they had were covenants or agreements. Now, in the 1930s, they found a collection of about 20,000 tablets called the Mari tablets in Syria. And what they found in these tablets were all of these ways that contractual agreements or covenants were made during the time of Abraham in the ancient Near East. And one of them is called cutting a covenant. And to cut a covenant is what's happening right here. You cut animals in half and you lay them bloody side up and the blood is everywhere, obviously, because these are huge animals. And what you do is you lay them apart from each other and you make an agreement. And most of the agreements at that time were made in blood because what you're saying is this is something that I am agreeing to do and I will do it with all my might even to death. So he says, Lord, how do I know you're really going to do this? And the Lord says, bring me these animals. Let's cut a covenant. He cuts them in half. Now what would happen is you would both circle them and walk through. So kind of a circle that you would walk through this path of the middle of these dead animals. And this is how you would make an agreement. Now we take a piece of paper and we make sure that lawyers look over and then we sign it. And we hope that there's some loopholes so that if we find a smarter lawyer, he can get us out of it. They didn't have any of this. The way that this was set up was this. God, if I don't keep this promise, let what happened to these animals be done to me. And when you walked between them, it was called walk, walking unto death. You would keep this promise unto death. 
Now let's read a little bit further. It's, it's kind of fascinating because it gives us an idea of what's happening here. First, if you just read that, you're, you don't really get what's going on. But really what's happening there is the Lord is saying, this is how you guys do it here. So let me show you that I'm going to keep the covenant. You guys, if you were making a covenant with any, any guy, Abraham, you would cut the covenant and you guys would walk through. Bring me five animals. That's how serious I am. Bring me five animals. Cut them in half. Let me show you that I will keep my word unto death. Unto death I will do this. And listen to what happens. Verse 11. And birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Of course, you're in anywhere. You're going to see, you know, vultures and other things try and come down on a dead animal and it's sitting there. But Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. And suddenly a great terror and darkness descended on him. And then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. Now, this is speaking 400 years prior to what we just read the exit from Egypt, the exodus. You are going to go down there for 400 years, your people. And then I'm going to rescue them. And when I rescue them from slavery, they will come out with many possessions. We just read in chapter 12, how the Lord gave favor to the Israelites in the eyes of the Egyptians. So when they were leaving and saying, get out, get out, we're, we're done with these plagues. We don't want to die. And the Israelites at the command of Moses said, will you guys give us some stuff on our way out? And they did. They said, yeah, here's a bunch of gold. Here's some silver. Here's some other expensive things. Here's some nice clothing. And they pillaged the Egyptians on their way out the door as had been promised 400 years earlier. But to Abraham, he says this, verse 15, but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet, yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Canaanites, Kenzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. A lot of sites there. That's a really hard one to read. Um, okay, we just talked about what it meant to cut a covenant. And then we talked walking unto death. Here's what you'll notice. A great sleep came on Abram. He didn't walk through these at all. He did not make any part of the covenant. But something does go through them. What goes through them? When the sun had set, it was dark and a smoking fire pot, so a pot that's billowing smoke out and a flaming torch passed through. And it says, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The Lord was the fiery pot. Now you might say, that's bizarre, Noah. I don't get it. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it totally makes sense to us. The Lord presents himself all through the scriptures as a consuming fire. 
And as he passes through, he makes a promise. I will bring your people out of Egypt. I will bring them out after they're slaves for 400 years. And then when he makes the promise that he's going to do it and bring them to the land, the image he chooses to use to cut the covenant and walk unto death is billowing smoke and a torch. And as he leads the people out of Israel to fulfill this promise, he leads them out as a great pillar of smoke or cloud and a great pillar of fire. The same symbols that had walked through the way of death are now the symbols he uses to walk them out. And what we're going to see is they're not actually even symbols. The Lord calls himself in the fire over and over. He says, I am in the fire over and over. So whatever that means, whatever that means to us as Christians, I don't fully know. But what it says, as we're going to get into Exodus 14 here is, the Lord several times, and then throughout the rest of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the Lord is in the fire. He's in it. I want to prove my point. Uh, Exodus 19, 16 through 20. This is where at Mount Sinai on the day of Pentecost, they are given the law. So Exodus 19, verse 16 says this. They've they've gotten to Mount Sinai. He has not been given the law yet, but he's about to get the law. He's telling all the Israelites to make themselves ready. The Lord tells Moses in particular to get ready. And then it says this in verse 16. On the third day when the morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Just for a moment, imagine yourself there. You, have, you are a group of refugee slaves. You have traveled 50 days from what was your homeland in Egypt. You are in the middle of a desert and you are standing at the base of a mountain. You've been led there by a cloud that flames up at night. And now you've been told to gather around the base of the mountain. And as you're gathering, trumpets begin to sound. Where? In the camp? No, from heaven. From the heavens, trumpets. And then rumbling begins. The mountain begins to quake. Clouds begin to appear on the mountain. And it says this. The camp shuddered. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. God dang. That's what they've been seeking for. That's what they've been, they've been wanting, even though they don't know it, since the time they were cast out of the garden at the Tower of Babel that we just read to the kids. That's what they were trying to bring about by their own means. And here he's saying, let me introduce you to your God. To meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Out of heaven comes this fireball and he lands down on the mountain and he's so full of fire. He's so full of heat that the mountain explodes in smoke and God is standing on the mountain waiting to meet with Moses. And then the most terrifying part happens next. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. Now, interestingly enough, the only other place where that terminology is used is actually at Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord says, and Yahweh called to Yahweh and Yahweh rained down fire 
on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Abraham went out to look, it says the smoke of the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah went up like smoke from a furnace. God is not to be trifled with. Yes, here he is meeting with his people to give them his laws for their good. But at Sodom, he met with people to reckon with them on the things they were doing. He's not to be trifled with. This is the same God. He comes down. It's filled with smoke like a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Gosh, can you guys imagine you're standing there and this happens? You see the Lord come down in this ball of fire. The fire is standing on the mountain. The mountain's filled with smoke and the trumpet is getting louder and louder as the mountain begins to shake this just violently. And then the Lord says this, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain and then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain. The fire is the Lord. He appears in this fire and Moses is called up onto the mountain. This is the same God that is leading them out, the same God that passed through the cut covenant, took the walk of death, Our God is a consuming fire. Again, in Exodus 40, I won't turn there, but as they finish the tabernacle, the place where God is going to dwell, they finish all of it. They make the sacrifices. It says the cloud comes down and fire comes down and the glory of the Lord fills the temple and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire stand right over where the Holy of Holies are. This is God. That's who's leading them. That's who's leading them, you guys. When we go on a journey and we don't necessarily understand what's about to happen, who's leading us? Who was leading Israel? They're going to complain later because they have forgotten who's leading them. They've forgotten the one who goes before them. All right, let's turn back to Exodus. We're going to come back to this section in Genesis because it's it's got a bunch of really amazing stuff in it, but let's turn back to Exodus 14. So it's the Lord that's leading them out. Let's remember that. Let's be cognizant of that. Who who is leading them? Verse 14 or chapter 14, verse one. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hahirath between Migdol and the sea. You must camp in front of Bel-Zaphon facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering around the land in confusion and the wilderness has boxed them in. Now, the Lord is leading them and he's leading them on a path which does not seem to us or to the Israelites at the time as the correct path. As we've already seen, there was a a way nearby to go. It was the way of the Philistines. And the Lord said, if I send them on that way, I know their hearts. As soon as they face war, they're going to turn back. So he doesn't lead them on that path. He leads them to a different path. So there is a way out that the Lord says, I'm not going to lead them on that path because if they come near the Philistines and the Philistines decide to fight them, they'll just give up and go back. So I'm going to send them this other way. And as they're going, whichever path they're taking, the Lord stops Moses and says, actually, I want you to turn this way. And the way they turn evidently boxes them in. The way they know that, we know that, is because it says here that Pharaoh is going to see it And he's going to think in his wisdom, oh, they're so dumb. 
They got lost and they're boxed in. Why are they boxed in? Well, if it is the place that most people think it is, there is a ridge on the one side, there is a mountain on the other side, and there's a sea in front of you. So the only way back is back the way you came. So here they are. The Lord has led them. The pillar of fire, the Lord himself, has led them to a dead end. There is no way out. And what we're going to see is, very quickly, Pharaoh's going to change his mind and decide to come after them. And where has the Lord led them? To a box canyon. They can't get out and there's a, a body of water in front of them. So let's, let's read ahead and see. Verse four says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Again, that idea of knowing. He wants them to know who he is. Even if that's through his judgment, and even if that means some of these people will die so that others will come to the knowledge of who Yahweh is. And in fact, many do. We see that as we go on into the book of Joshua and Joshua goes to destroy Jericho, there's a woman there who is a prostitute, Rahab. And she has heard of the greatness of Yahweh because of these very events. And she will decide to become part of Israel. They will spare her. And she will marry in to the Israelite family. In fact, she will become a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. So the Lord knows what he's doing. And as he's doing these things, he is, he is showing his knowledge to the world at large. A world that has rejected him long ago at the Tower of Babel. That is now being reintroduced for the first time to Yahweh, the creator God. Not these gods that you worship. Not these beings. These are real beings. But they aren't the creator God. In fact, I created these beings that you are now worshiping, but I'm the one who deserves worship. I'm the one who made you. And so he's saying, even the Egyptians will know who I am. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. And he took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. Talk about an arrogant man. Now here it says directly, Pharaoh changed his mind. When the Bible says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, which it does several times, he is encouraging Pharaoh. He is giving Pharaoh the courage to walk forward with his plans of rebellion. You want to be rebellious against the Lord? You want to stand against God, he will still use you for his glory. It just won't be in a way that's very nice for you in the end. If you want to stand with God, he will also use you for his glory in a way that brings him glory and you good things. The point being that no matter who you are or what walk of life you choose, whether you choose to be in sync with God and submit to him and love him or whether you choose to rebel against him, he will use you for his glory. He gave Pharaoh many opportunities to turn back. He knew that Pharaoh wouldn't. Maybe that's why he chose this time in history. Maybe he chose a time when he knew this Pharaoh would be raised up. This would be the king over Egypt. And he would be extremely hard-headed, extremely stubborn and arrogant. And even after he had lost everything, including his firstborn, within a couple hours, he's already changed his mind. What are we doing? We need those slaves. Let's go get them. And he gets his whole army ready. And here they go. Verse eight, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians 
all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Pi-Hihiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So they've camped here. They've stopped here. The cloud and the pillar of fire, God himself has led them there. And now the Egyptians have caught up. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. And the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. Now, if it stopped right there, I think we could all say, well, who doesn't in a moment of terror call out for help from the Lord? But as we go on, we see that quickly their trust in the Lord evaporates. And they said to Moses in verse 11, it is because there, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Now remember, they've been called to go out. When the Lord is saying, let my people go, Over and over, the refrain right after that is, so that they may serve me. They're supposed to hold a festival to me. They're supposed to serve me. And here, very quickly, as soon as things look bad, what do they say? Would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. Would have been better for us if we just stayed there in slavery. They've been crying out for years, generations, literally at least four generations that have been in slavery that have been crying out to God for help. Now they're being helped and the first sign, the first sign that it might be difficult, they immediately say, let's just go back to serving our slave masters. Now, this, in the New Testament, Paul tells us these things are given to us as way of instruction for us Christians. We're not Egyptian, or we're not Israelites. We've been grafted in through belief, but He tells us that this is for our instruction. Do you think he wants us to imitate this? No, certainly not. This is the antithesis of what he wants from us. When the first roadblock comes, when the first trial, the first tribulation, the first suffering, does he want us to turn back? Of course not. And listen to what he says. Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Now, Moses is an example of what we should be like. Listen to his utterance of faith right here. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Stop. You guys, have you not seen everything he's done thus far? Moses doesn't know what's going to happen here. Moses has not been told, I'm going to split the Red Sea. It's going to be awesome. You guys are going to come through. Then Pharaoh's going to come through right behind you. And they're going to think they're going to get you. And then you're going to put the... He hasn't told him any of that. Moses is just standing there in the same predicament as all of them. He does not know what is coming, but he trusts God. Stand firm. Don't be afraid. You will see the Lord's salvation. He will accomplish this for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. There's a psalm, and I forget which psalm it is, but it says, 
It's talking about just that that trust of knowing and walking with the Lord. And the psalmist says, I am like a weaned child. I've been, I'm full. Nothing for me to cry about. I'm just sitting here. I'm just, I'm like a quiet child. Child that's just been nursed. I'm quiet. I'm good. And that's what Moses is encouraging them here. Just, you guys, have you not seen already the salvation that he's wrought? Have you not already seen the greatness of Yahweh? He's going to fight for you. Just wait. Calm down. And I would encourage you guys, when you, all of us, when we hit, we're going to hit times in our life that seem impossible. We're going to come to dead ends that seem like all that's going to come to us is death. And maybe that will be what happens. Maybe we will die. Maybe we'll be like, you know, James in the New Testament. James was killed. Peter was rescued by an angel, but James was killed. The Lord led him to that dead end and he allowed him to die. But that wasn't a dead end for him. James was, he'll be resurrected. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's waiting for the return of Christ. He will be raised from the dead. My point being this, there is no dead end for us that can overcome us. As Paul says, death, where is your sting? It's gone now. It's gone. And the people of Israel need to start trusting the Lord that the path that he is taking them on is for a purpose. The purpose is to let people know who he is. Had he not led that them into this canyon blocked by a sea, he would never have been able to bring about one of the most famous stories in all of humanity. The story of God rescuing a ragtag group of slaves from the most mighty army on earth by drowning them in a sea. We all know that story. Even people that don't know the Lord know the story of the Red Sea. We use it in common language because it's such a story of God's great salvation of his people that we use it over and over and over whenever we're trying to make an example of somebody being saved or some almost seemingly impossible thing coming to pass. And that's what the Lord wanted. He specifically said, camp here, stay here, because he knew that it would draw Pharaoh in. And he knew that he would work a mighty salvation. So let's read the rest here and see what happens. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. And as for you, lift up your staff, stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And as for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh all his army and his chariots and horsemen and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 19, really interesting. Then the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelites. Now, we've talked about this before. I won't belabor the point. Um, I... I think it's very clear from scripture. It's attested to all through the scriptures. The angel of the Lord, in my opinion, is the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the one who was in the fire. He is the one that was leading them. And now it switches from saying it's the Lord to it's the angel of the Lord. And all through the Old Testament, you're going to see this constant flipping. When the Lord goes to Moses in the burning bush, at first it says the Lord spoke to him. Then the next line, it'll say the angel of the Lord spoke to him. When he calls down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, Yahweh called down fire from Yahweh. My point being, it's the Lord that's leading them. And at times it appears that they can even see him. They see this being in the fire. Now he goes behind them. So here they are. 
They are camped out. They are facing a sea. Behind them is this army that's coming after them. There's a ridge or a mountain on the left, a ridge or a mountain on the right. And the Lord says, would you guys quit whining? Just lift up your, your staff, Moses, and split the sea. And as he does this, remember, this pillar had only been in front of them. Now it goes back behind them, and it splits them off from the Egyptians. The angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them as well. And it came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. And there was a cloud and darkness. And it lit up the night. And neither group came near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on the right and the left. So here's what's happening. This cloud, now in other versions it says that the one side had light all night and the other side had darkness all night. The Egyptians are divided from the Israelites. They are seeing nothing but a cloud of darkness. The Israelites have a flame of light that is leading them through the sea. As Moses is holding his staff out, these Thousands upon thousands of Israelites and all their flocks and children are walking through the sea. It probably took all night. This is a huge group of people. And as the night begins to end, the cloud moves and lets Pharaoh see what's happening. They've just gotten to the other side. And now it says this. The Egyptians, verse 23, the Egyptians set out in pursuit all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire. Now, we had just read that it was the angel of the Lord. So which is it? And I'm, again, I'm going to say to you, it's both. I really believe that, um, and I, if anybody has questions about it after, see me. I'll give you some books that you can read uh, that make this point really well. It's very compelling and super interesting, but this pillar of fire and cloud, the Lord is in it, and he literally starts looking down at the Egyptians. He's watching them. He's watching them begin to pass through the sea, and it says this. Uh, midway through 24, and through the Egypt, the Lord threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. And they said, let's get away from Israel because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. They know exactly what's going on. They have no doubt and they are terrified. Imagine you are the greatest army that you know about. And here you are just trying to get through this pathway and suddenly your wheels are constantly, constantly swerving. The horses aren't driving the way they're supposed to be. And you intuitively know in that moment, you're looking at this cloud, this pillar of fire and cloud. There seems to be some sort of being in it. And now your chariots that are the very best aren't working right. And they start to say, oh, we need to get away from these people. Oh, this was a bad choice. The Lord's fighting for them. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, 
on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, isn't that interesting? The same, the same word is used as when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb at daybreak. At daybreak, salvation comes. And at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. <laughs> That's one way to put it. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea and the water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. After they see this great miracle by the Lord, they believe in him. My encouragement to us would be this. Let us be those who, like Moses, trust in the Lord even in the moment when salvation seems far away. Because what we're going to see with Israel is this isn't a one-time thing. It's not like, well, we doubted a little bit, but now that we saw that, now we're good. No, we're going to see in the very next chapter, as soon as there's not water, they're saying the same thing. Oh, you brought us out here to die again? Just, they're constantly going, oh, now there's no food. What, you want us to die out here? We could have died there. Like they just constantly say the same. Every single little problem that happens. Oh, thanks a lot, Moses. We could have been eating meat in Egypt and just died there as slaves. They just, they constantly go back to this. We need to be careful in our own hearts that every time something doesn't go the way we want, and life is full of terrible things, suffering, insurmountable odds. And yet the Lord says, Jesus has promised, I will be with you even to the end of the age. I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. He promised the same to the, to the Israelites and they don't even see it. Only Moses was like, you guys, calm down. Wait and see, just be quiet. You'll see what the Lord's going to do. And here's, here's what I want to look at. And I'm going to bunch the rest of these questions into one, one thing here. We, we looked at, do we trust God? Who, who's leading us? Who was leading Israel? Yes, mom. Before you go on, could you just make a comment on it in verse 15? Why did the Lord say to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Like, what else would he have done? Because um, as we're going to see, they've already been given a promise from one who has kept his promises over and over. They don't even need to cry out. This is all part of what he's promised them from the beginning. So those are the next couple questions that I want to answer. And, and one of those will be answered. That question will be answered right here. So do we trust the one who's leading us? Do we trust Yahweh, the God who's leading us? Who is he? He's Yahweh. Do we trust the promises given by Yahweh? Do we trust his timing, the path he takes us on? And then finally, do we trust his character? So I want to look quickly at the promises. Uh, Genesis 15, I'm not going to go back there, but the Lord had already promised to Abraham all the way back 400 years earlier, you guys are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. This was not something new to the Israelites. He had told them this was going to happen. There's someone else that actually we're going to look at as well, not just Moses. There's one other guy here in this story that shows a great amount of faith and trust in the Lord. 
And that's the dead guy that they're carrying with them, Joseph. If you go all the way back to the end of 13, Exodus 13, 19 through 20, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. Joseph knew what was going to happen. He knew the promises that had been given to Abraham. We're going to live here. We're going to be slaves here eventually. But you you guys are going to be rescued. In 400 years when you're rescued, take my 400-year-old bones with you. Take me with you. Take me to the promised land with you. So when Moses is there and the Lord's saying, why are you crying out to me? It's because he's already made promises. One, he promised Abraham, you're going to be slaves for 400 years. Then I'm going to rescue you. Joseph himself had had such faith in these promises that he made them swear an oath to take his bones. But also those promises had been made to Jacob. In Genesis 46, right before they go down into the land, Joseph saying, come down to the land with me, dad. Genesis 46 says this, verse two, as Israel and his entire family is gonna go down to Egypt where there's food, he says this, that night God spoke to Israel, speaking of Jacob, in a, in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he said. And Jacob replied, here I am. And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there, and I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Do we trust the promises of God? We have so many promises as Christians. The entire New Testament is filled with promises to every single one of you and me. None of the promises are, you will never suffer. You will be rich. You will be healthy. Everything in your life will go well. That is not a promise. What he has promised is, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. I will raise you from the dead. I will bring you into my kingdom. All these promises have been made by the Lord to us, but do we trust them? Joseph trusted them so much that even though they were 400 years off, he said, "Take when you guys get out, just take my bones with you. I don't want to stay here. Jacob trusted him. He went down. The Lord says, I'm going to bring you out. I'll make you a great nation there. This is part of my plan. In Exodus 6, more closely to what we're reading, to the heart of the question that you just asked about, why is Moses crying out? And the Lord says, why are you crying out to me? Listen to what he says in Exodus 6, verse 6. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a possession, I am Yahweh. So when they are standing at the sea, are they yet in the land that has been promised? And that's why the Lord says, Moses, why are you crying out to me, man? 
This is part of my plan. I led, I told you guys, go back this way and, and camp right here because I have a plan. That's why he's saying that to him. Like, don't you trust me? Don't you trust that I know what I'm doing here? And we all get into these places in our life where we don't understand, why am I here? Why would you leave me on this? The, Lord, there's a bunch of other paths that would have been better. Why, why did you, that would have been better. Just staying in Egypt would have been better. But the Lord says, no, I've got a plan for you. Do we trust his promise? Do we trust his plan? Do we trust the route that he's taking us on? He's bringing us through this weird route. But do we trust it? Do you trust that in each one of your lives, he is taking you on that route to bring you to salvation and to diffuse the knowledge of who he is to those around you? That's his plan. That's what he's trying to do at all times. Now, I want to end on the goodness and the justice of God in his timing and character. And by that, I mean this. We're going to go back to Genesis 15, but I just, I kind of want to set it up. The Lord's plan that he wanted to bring about, it's just not always what we want in our own lives. It's not, it's not the path we would pick always. And it's not only illustrated in the Israelites at large, but it's illustrated in their forerunner who went to Egypt first, Joseph. God had a plan to save the entire area around Egypt, the Middle East, from starvation. That plan required one person to suffer for everybody else. Joseph was a good kid. He wasn't a wicked man, but his brothers hated him because of jealousy and they sold him into slavery, part of God's plan. He became a slave in Egypt, part of God's plan. While there, he was accused of rape, which he did not commit. He was accused of rape because he refused to sleep with someone else's wife, part of God's plan. He was sent as a slave into prison. I mean, that's got to be the worst of the worst place that you can be on earth. You're already a slave and now you're imprisoned. You're the lowest of the low. That was God's plan for salvation for Israel and for all that land that would have starved to death because it's through Joseph that the dreams of Pharaoh are interpreted, saying a famine's coming, get ready. And then Joseph is given this position to make everything ready. He ends up saving his own family from destruction because he suffered. Are we willing to suffer if that's the path that God has for us? That's his... I guess what I'm trying to say, guys, is that is not what we talk about hardly ever in the church. We just don't. Sometimes he, he calls us to suffer. And are we going to suffer like Joseph that when he sees his brothers says, yeah, I know you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or are we going to be like the Israelites and say, why'd you bring us here, Moses? It would have been better to be slaves. We have to make a choice about the kind of people we're going to be. And that's, that's as far as we can take it as people. We can't make anything happen, but we can ask the Lord to make our hearts right before him. And this is what I want to show you, sometimes the, the, the justice and goodness of God that sometimes doesn't make sense to us. And this goes along with his timing. If we go back to Genesis, I'm going to read from Genesis again in chapter 15. I'm going to read one thing from the New Testament and we'll be done. But I want to read this to you again. They've, they've cut the covenant. It's Genesis 15. Um, 
It's verse 13. They've cut the covenant. Moses, or I'm sorry, Abraham begins to fall asleep. He sees a vision from the Lord. Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in the land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Lord has just set up this absolutely fascinating thing that we need to wrestle with, and that's this. The Lord is willing to allow his people to suffer for 400 years that he might show himself to be good even to the wicked. The sin of the Amorites isn't full. The Lord knows what's going to happen. Just as the Lord knew that if he brought them through a certain route, if they faced war, they'd turn back. Just as he knew that if he led them into this dead end, Pharaoh would come after them. The Lord knows the Amorites are not going to repent. He knows that. And yet the goodness and justice of God is that he is willing to let the apple of his eye, his children, his nation, his people, suffer so that he can show himself to be just to a wicked people. And maybe only one or two of them actually repent and come to him, as we see with Hagar. Maybe a couple of them will repent, but he's willing to allow his people to cry out for 400 years wondering, where are you, Lord? Where are you? We've waited for you. We've been crying out to you, Lord. Where are you? Where are the promises that you promised to us? You said if we cry out, you'll hear us. We're crying, where are you? And yet he waited. Next generation, same thing. And he waited. Their children had to be cast into the Nile River and he waited. Their children were killed by the Egyptians and he waited. And he waited and he waited to show himself just even to the wicked. To show that his judgment is true even to those who don't deserve his long suffering. 400 years of long suffering for the wicked 400 years of suffering for the righteous. Hmm. Joseph suffered to save his people. His people suffered to show the Amorites grace and mercy, and some of them were saved. The church, though not here in this country, has been suffering for 2,000 years. The very birth of the church Within the next several weeks and months, Paul, Saul, is out killing them. Is going from town to town to collect Christians to kill them, to stone them to death. They are driven from their homes. They are driven from their families. Their property is seized. Everything they have is taken. They run to all the parts of the Middle East, Europe, all over. Why? So they won't be killed, so their children won't be killed. Jesus said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Why? Why is he calling the church to suffer? Why would he allow his people to suffer? It's been over 2,000 years. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
in chapter 3, Peter saying, hey, in the last days, there's going to be people that come along and they're going to mock God. Second Peter chapter 3. And I will start in verse 3. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, everything continues. All things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought out from the water and through the water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded by the same word. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In the last days, people will mock and they will say, you guys keep saying he's coming. You keep saying this promise is going to happen. He said he's going to come. You guys have been saying this for thousands of years now, but everything's gone on the same as it always has. You foolish Christians. And we sit sometimes just like Israel. No way out. And we say, where are you, Lord? Why? What's going on? What is going on? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you rescuing us? Why aren't you saving us? Why are we dying? Why are our brothers and sisters in China being jailed? Why are their churches being knocked down? Why are they being brainwashed? Why are they going to re-education camps? Why through the Middle East are Christians tortured and killed? Their children taken as child brides to be sent out to all the Muslim families around them. Why are Christians suffering, Lord? Why are they hurting? Why are they dying? Why? Where are you? And then we come to verse eight. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. What seems like thousands of years to you guys is just a couple days to me. And listen to how he ends it. The Lord does not delay his promise. You guys think he's delaying? You think he's not keeping it? He's, he's not slack. He's not lazy. As some understand delay. But he is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. What if in the wisdom of God, he is willing to allow his people, the apple of his eye, his bride to suffer so that every day one more might be saved. One more might be brought out of the fire and brought into his family. What if he's willing to allow his people to suffer so that his knowledge can continue to go out through the world so that all might come to repentance. Will all come to repentance? Of course not. Not all the Amorites came to repentance, but a couple did. We're seeing a way greater harvest than that. Right now, as we watch the church begin to die and dwindle in the West, the church is growing faster than it's ever grown in the history of the world. More people are coming to Christ. 
than ever. There are more Christians on earth than ever before. There are people in the Middle East where no missionary will go because of fear, where Muslim, devout Muslims are having dreams night after night of Jesus and coming to know Christ and seeking out missionaries to hear the rest of the story and then going to their people. Every day that he waits, every day that Christians suffer for his sake, he is bringing one more into his family. We don't always understand the ways of God. We don't understand the path he's taking us on. We don't always understand the timing, but do we trust him? Do we trust his character? Do we trust his promises? Do we trust Yahweh to be Yahweh? He will bring them about. He will save us. There is a day coming soon and very soon. That light will burst forth. The morning star will come forth and darkness will be driven out forever. This is his promise, you guys. This is what he's doing with Israel. He had a plan and he's fulfilling the plan. He told them all along, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And that's the idea that we need to take when we go forward. Just like like Moses said to the Israelites, stand firm. Don't waver. He's He's going to get you through this. He'll see you to the end. He'll fulfill his promise. He'll do it. Be quiet. Settle down. He's here. He's with us. He was with Joseph when Joseph went down to Egypt. The Lord was with him. He's with Moses. He's with the Israelites. He was with Jesus as he went to the cross. He will be with us, his children, as we walk through this life. His promises will come to pass. And the time that it takes is not because he's lazy, but it's because he's long-suffering, desiring that none should perish. Lord, thank you that you are so good. Thank you that you, you know the way. (laughs) Just like the disciples, they asked you, Lord, we don't know the way. And you say, have you not been with me so long? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Lord, you're the way. We don't understand all the paths you take us on, but let us trust you. We don't understand your timing, but let us trust your character. We don't understand many things of this world, but let us stand firm and believe in your salvation and quiet ourselves on the knowledge that you will always bring to pass what you have promised, that you cut the covenant and that you walked the way of death. Yes, with Abraham, but even as you walked up to Calvary, you walked the way of death for us. You have made the covenant by your own blood. You will accomplish the promise. Nothing will stop you. Let us be steadfast and trust that. In Jesus' name, amen.